Open to Hebrews 11. This morning we're coming to the final third of our, our study through the book of Hebrews. Believe it or not, we only have four more weeks of a study in, in, in Hebrews. Um, that's not because we only have four more weeks in the semester, but we're going to take a couple of weeks off for spring break. The next two weeks will be different because of spring break. The Sunday after that, March the 24th, the same day that we're having the info meeting for the London trip, but March the 24th, um, pretty cool, Kevin Ezell, uh, if you don't know who that is, Kevin Ezell is the president of the North American Mission Board. Uh, he's going to be preaching here that, this, that morning, but he's also going to be teaching college Sunday school that morning. So that, make sure you're here for that, to hear Kevin Ezell on March the 24th. Taking all that kind of stuff into account, um, we'll have, you know, We'll have a few weeks away. We'll jump back in in chapter 12 when we come back, and then we'll have four more sessions in Hebrews after that. But today we're in Hebrews 11. And with it, we're coming to one of the most well-known chapters, not just in Hebrews, but in the Bible. Sometimes it's called the, the Hall of Faith, uh, where you, if you've read it before, you know the author of Hebrews gives this incredibly, incredibly long list of Old Testament saints, Old Testament believers who persevered their whole lives in faith and faithfulness to the Lord. And this, this list of Old Testament saints or believers is, is what he's going to refer to in the next chapter as a great cloud of witnesses. A great cloud of witnesses. That's, in fact, if you were just reading Hebrews straight through, you would read this, this whole long list of people in Hebrews 11. And then you'd come to chapter 12, and the very first verse says... Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That, that great cloud of witnesses that he's talking about in that verse is this whole list of believers that he's, he's mentioning in, from the Old Testament that he's mentioning in chapter 11. This is what we're going to study today. This is the great cloud of witnesses that he's talking about who surround us as we persevere in faithfulness in our own lives. Let's just think about that for just a second. In what way are they witnesses? Because it's nice to know that at the outset before we even start thinking about them. We know the author of Hebrews is going to say this is a great cloud of witnesses around us. So in what way are they witnesses? I mean, we, we use that word in more than one way. Like, uh, it could mean that they are witnesses of us. Meaning, they're like spectators of our lives. They're, they're, they're already in heaven, and they're sort of up there witnessing our lives. They're being spectators, watching our lives, and maybe cheering us on or something like that. It's a cool imagery. I don't know that that's what he's saying here, though. What he, I think what he's saying here is, is not that these, these have already lived and died in faith and faithfulness, and they're now... Uh, witnessing our lives being spectators of our lives but rather that they are witnesses to us they're not witnesses of us prepositions are important they're not just witnesses of us they're witnesses to us and in other words they are the ones bearing witness to us they are telling us something um, like a witness on a witness stand giving a testimony they're giving a testimony their lives already lived are giving giving us testimony so rather than us being the focus they're looking at us they're the focus their lives are testifying something to us and so we're surrounded by this whole cloud of people 
that have gone on before us and their lives are bearing witness to us of how to persevere in, in, in faith through life, seeing that Jesus is better uh, than anything else we can have here, something he's been arguing now for 10 chapters. You can see his flow of thought. I, I, I try to remind you of the flow of thought every week um, because I don't want you to just hear isolated messages. I want you to know what, how, to, how to read Hebrews for yourself when we get done. So his flow of thought. Remember how last week we, looked at, we were in chapter 10 and we looked at the warning passage at the end of chapter 10. And he was basing that warning in chapter 10 uh, on all that he had said in chapters 5 through 10. Long, uninterrupted teaching passage. and it, We're talking about how Jesus is the better high priest, how he is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple. And, and God himself came to dwell with us in Jesus Christ. And he offered himself as a greater sacrifice for sins, for the forever forgiveness of our sins, and the promised hope of eternal life. And then so we saw all that truth issue forth into these exhortations in chapter 10. Three of them, in fact. Let's, let's draw near to God in, in, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, he says in verse 22. And let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, he'll say in verse 30, 23. And he said, let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, he says in verse 24. How? Not neglecting to meet together, verse 25 as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that's when he issued this warning against walking away from Christ. Uh, if you weren't here last week and didn't hear that, we don't have time to go into it, listen to it on the podcast. But he issued a strong warning against walking away from Christ because some were wavering. But just to remind you, as we set the stage for chapter 11, he ended that that chapter, chapter 10, on a hopeful note, on a positive note. So like, look at the very last verse again of chapter 10 where he says, but after warning, he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So he warns them against walking away from Christ, but he's hopeful that they will persevere. And that brings us to today's passage in chapter 11. He's not changing subjects. He's not. He's, he's continuing his exhortation to them to, hey, press on. Press on and persevere in Christ. And, 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 and even through temptation, hardship, and he does it. He's, he's exhorting them now, not just through, let us do this and let us do that and let us do this and let us do that. He's saying, he's exhorting them by saying, look at all these that have gone before you. That's what he's doing. Look at, look at uh, their life and look at the outcome of the way they live. Look at their, their perseverance and faith and, and, and let, let their lives be an exhortation to you. And we're going to think through this whole chapter today. I know, it's a, it's a long one. We're not going to be examining every single verse of it, although that would be fruitful. Do it in your own time. But I want us to see the big picture and try to see the larger point he's trying to make. So before you say anything else, let's read the chapter. Um, of Hebrews 11. We're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 40 at the very end. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel, 
offered to God a more more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by by accepting his gifts. And And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grands grains of sand by the seashore these all died in faith not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out they would have had opportunity to return but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore god is not ashamed to be called their god for he has prepared for them a city By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That's a cool verse. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land, But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. 
were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins and sheep of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let's pray. God, this is your uh, holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And um, we recognize it as that. And it, it is not that because we say it is, but because you say it is. And it is. It's ours to recognize what is already true. And I pray that you would bring this, this word of yours alive to us. Make real to us the things of, of these spiritual things that um, we just read. Give us eyes to see. Give us minds to understand the truth. Hearts to embrace and love the truth and wills to do whatever it leads us to do. For your glory, for our good, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, like I said, this is one of the great chapters of the Bible. kind of takes us on a guided tour of the whole Old Testament. This whole letter of Hebrews actually has been like this. But this is uh, just so clearly an, another time where the New Testament teaches us, it's unmistakably, the importance, the incredible importance of the Old Testament and of reading the Old Testament and being not just, I kind of know that story, thoroughly acquainted with these stories of the Old Testament, being familiar with it. The whole, the whole New Testament does that, but there are a couple of chapters, some chapters just do so more overtly than others. I, I think immediately of two, two particular chapters. The first one I think of is Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, when he's about, right before he's stoned to death. Like he essentially, from memory, recounts the whole history of the Old Testament. That's, by the way, I've said it before, but that's a good, if you want to memorize a longer passage of Scripture, Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7 is not a bad one to use because in so doing, you're not only memorizing a longer passage, but you're committing to memory basically the whole history of the Old Testament. Two, two birds, one stone. But the other chapter is this one, uh, Hebrews 11, where he essentially covers from Abel in, chapter, um, in verse 4 to Malachi. I mean, he mentions the prophets in verse 32, of whom Malachi was one. So he, he, he goes the whole gamut of the, of the Old Testament. And our understanding of the Christian faith, I mean, hear me on this, our understanding of the, of the Christian faith is anemic and it's, and it's weak without uh, a, a, a thorough grasp of the Old Testament as well as the New. Think about it. The Old Testament is fully two-thirds of our Bible. Fully two-thirds of what God has said to us in words. And, and we neglect, in other words, we neglect most of what he said to us if we don't ever um, learn and read from the Old Testament. 
The Apostle Paul said in Romans 15, 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul was writing that. He was being used of God to pen the New Testament, much of the New Testament. But even he reminds us, even as Christians, that all that was written before him in the Old Testament is written for our instruction. So let's just be aware of that as we come to a chapter like this. And I think when we're looking at Hebrews 11, we can look at it from four different angles. And I think that's not the only way to divide it up, but that's the way it came to me. So in verses 1 through 6, I want us to see the essence of faith. So he opens this passage, really in verse 1, but really all the way down through verse 6, sort of mm, giving us a foundational statement about biblical faith, what it is. Because all through this chapter, it's going to be by faith, by faith, by, by faith, Abraham did this, by faith, Moses did that, by faith, by faith, all these people did all these things. What is this faith we're talking about? So he gives us sort of the essence of, of biblical faith in the first opening verses. But then the bulk of this chapter, clearly, are the examples of faith, this, this steady stream of Old Testament examples, more or less from beginning to end. There are so many, we're just not going to be able to address all of them. And it's hard because any, anyone you leave out is a really good story. So uh, I encourage you really strongly to give this chapter thorough study in your own time. But we'll look at a few key examples. Then we're going to come back and, and think about uh, the endurance of faith. That We'll see that in several of these examples. But how their, how their steadfast faith influenced how they saw their lives. And how, how it, 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 it helped them to persevere to the very end, even through really, really difficult hardships. And finally, in the last two verses, we're going to think about the end of faith. What end, end as in the outcome? What was the outcome of their life, life of faith? What was the outcome of their lives, the lives of all these witnesses who came before us? Because at first glance, in the last two verses, it might be confusing, but it's a beautiful, it, it really is a beautiful way to end this great chapter. So let's dive in, and let's Let's uh, look first at the essence of faith, the essence of faith in the first opening verses. Um, he sets the tone for this whole chapter in the first verse. So he says there, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So this is going to define the faith that is, that is exemplified throughout the rest of the chapter. At least one of these two characteristics, most of the time both, sometimes one of, the, one of the two is highlighted, one or both of these characteristics of faith is illustrated in every example that's given. Uh, those, two, those two characteristics being the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Two words that immediately stand out in that are assurance and conviction. And you can tell there's a lot of ways that you could define or word your definition of biblical faith. He chose this way, and you can almost see why, because it's precisely those two things, assurance and conviction, that some in this church were wavering on, tempted to walk away from Christ. He says conviction of things not seen. Because, why, why say that? Conviction of things not seen. Because, think about it, for those in this church in 2,000 years ago, still to this very day. It, it's, it, 
our, our conviction is based on promises and assurances uh, of God's word and not on seeing Jesus with our own eyes. I don't think anybody in this room has seen Jesus with their own eyes. If you have, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear about it, but I don't think we have. I mean, Jesus even told Thomas at the end of John's gospel, Jesus told Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So that is the faith that's defined in conviction of things not seen. It's, 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 it's belief in God's word. It's trust in his promises. It's the conviction of things not seen. I don't see it with my own eyes, but God has told me, and I believe it. It's a conviction of mine. But it's also, he says in verse 1, assurance of things hoped for. So think about the, 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 the thrust of that. Assurance of things hoped for. It's, it's not faith. Biblical faith is not just mental assent or belief in a few statements about what Jesus did in the past, but it's forward-looking. It's, it's, a, it's a realization that when you come to faith in Christ, you're now in the middle of a story. You know? You're in the middle of a story that God is writing, that God is playing out in real time. And that, that most definitely is the faith defined and exemplified here. It's firm and it's forward-looking. I know that sounds kind of philosophical at first, but he's going to give plenty of concrete examples of it in real life. But he says in verse 2, this is the faith, this is the kind of faith that the Old Testament believers were commended for. That's the understatement of the chapter. Here, he's about to unload example after, ex after example. After giving brief examples in Abel in verse 4 and Enoch in verse 5, he comes back around in verse 6. He come, basically, when he came to verse 6, he's coming back around to the definition he gave in verse 1, but this time he's wording it in a slightly different way. Let's, let's remind ourselves. So what did verse 1 say? That faith is assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. Okay, well now in verse 6 he says, and without faith it is, Im it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God, pause, we're going to pause right there, for whoever would draw near to God. How did he just tell us, back in chapter 10, verse 23, it's not on the screen, you'll have to look, how did he tell us in chapter 10, verse 23, that we are to draw near to God? He says in chapter 10, verse 23, that we're to draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So we draw near to God by Faith, okay, back to verse 6. So when he says, for whoever would draw near to God, he assumes that we already know that that's, we do that by faith. We draw near to God by faith, and so the rest of this verse, the rest of verse 6 is describing that faith by which we draw near to God. And he says of that faith, it must believe that he exists, that, that, is, that God exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Two things. Two characteristics. God exists. What's another way of saying that? Conviction of things not seen. And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Rewards those who earnestly seek What's another way of saying that? Assurance of things hoped for. Reward is a forward-looking thing. So assurance of things hoped for. So verse 6 is another way of stating the essence of God-honoring faith mentioned in verse 1. And here it is. Believe that God exists 
and that he rewards those who seek him. And that is exactly the description of all those given in the rest of this chapter as examples of faith. They, 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 they are con, convicted in their hearts that, uh, of what they cannot see, namely that God exists. And they, they have assurance in their heart of, of something that they're hoping for, this reward that is coming as they earnestly seek him. And there are so many examples here. Like I said, it would be a good exercise to go through each one of them carefully and look at each backstory. But for the sake of time this morning, I just want to zoom in on, on, on some of the most prominent. And the person who gets far and away the most attention in this chapter, not surprisingly, is Abraham. He gets, he gets uh, more play in this chapter than anybody else. And by extension, his immediate family, his son, grandson, immediate descendants. Abraham, all through the New Testament, by the way, if you don't, hadn't picked up on this, all through the, the New Testament, Abraham is the one who is hel always held up as the example of all examples of faith. And Paul holds him up in Romans, especially Romans chapter 4. Um, he does it again in Galatians. Uh, James does it in James chapter 2. And then, and, then, and then we see that uh, the author of Hebrews does it here. So Abraham is mentioned first in verse 8. And in verse 8 he says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. This is clearly an example of, at the very least, Abraham believing that God exists. Of being convicted of things not seen. Why? Because Abraham, what was Abraham prior to God's calling him? Abraham was a pagan, living in a pagan land in a polytheistic culture. He didn't believe in one true God. He, he, he never grown up that way. And God revealed himself to Abraham as the one, the God of, of, the God of gods, King of kings, Lord of lords, one true and living God, the one and only. And Abraham believed that and he obeyed. But what does it say he did? He said he, said he set out to go to a place that God had promised to give him. Didn't know where it was, but he set out to go there. Well, what does verse 9 call that place? He calls it the land of promise. By faith he went to live in the land of promise. Well, that's a very forward-looking description. The rest of the chapter is going to make it clear that this doesn't mean that the land itself was the promise, although it kind of was on a lower level, but that this physical land, even when they got there, got there, was a symbol of a greater promise coming. I mean, that's exactly what it says in verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's not a piece of real estate in the Middle East. Abraham's faith understood that, that God had something far greater planned and promised than just a plot of land. He understood that, that that plot of land was like a physical representation, a physical down payment, a physical confirmation of something way better that was on the way. And that, that greater land would come through a promised Messiah who would come as one of his descendants. Interestingly, I just want to make a... a I want you to make an, see an interesting connection between this verse and what comes right after it. Because verse 10 says, 
he's talking about this city that Abraham was looking forward to. And it, and it says of this city that he was looking forward to that its designer and builder is God. Okay? And immediately in the next verse, verse 11, he starts talking about this promised offspring that would miraculously be given to Abraham and his wife Sarah, talking about the birth of Isaac. The, that Isaac would be the first of a promised long line of descendants that would ultimately lead to this Messiah who was promised to come, this Messiah who would be both God and man. Designer and builder is God who would take on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and, and would bring his people to this city that Abraham was looking forward to. And Jesus did say in John eight fifty six, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham saw this coming. And that same faith of Abraham, this, he believed that God exists and that he would reward him one day as he sought after him. That's conviction of things not seen, assurance of things hoped for, demonstrated in Abraham's life. That, is, that filters down in his family because uh, skipping down to verse 20, when you come to his son Isaac, it simply says, by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, future blessings. Conviction of things not seen, by faith. Future blessings, assurance of things hoped for. But in those future blessings that he laid out, that he laid the blessing on, on Jacob in this instance, this, this future blessing would ultimately lead to the Messiah who would one day be born through his family. So Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph. And you know the story of how Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And he wound up in Egypt where he rose to power. The whole story of Joseph is a fascinating story. And of all the things you could have said about Joseph and his incredible life of faith, remember Potiphar's wife and all this kind of stuff? Out of all the things you could have said about Joseph in this great chapter about faith, here's what he says in verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That is a strange but awesome verse. What? It's looking back to Genesis 50. It's looking back to Genesis 50, specifically verses 24 and 25, where Joseph is now an old man and he's dying. Joseph is laying there, dying in Egypt, and, and right before he dies, in Genesis 50, verses 24 and 25, he does two things. He as he's laying there dying, he prophesies that one day God would bring his people out of Egypt. He prophesies, dying Joseph prophesies that the exodus would happen. That's why it says in this verse he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. That's what he did. They had not yet, when Joseph was laying dying, they had not yet been slaves for 400 years. But he knew they would be. But that God would one day bring them out. Way to go, Joseph. But in the very next verse, it says, oh, and by the way, I need to tell you what to do with my bones. <laughs> what? So, it, why? What he's doing when he, said, when he gave him instructions concerning his bones, he's saying, don't bury me in Egypt. 
okay? Don't bury me in Egypt. Bury me in the promised land. That's, that's all. So it's funny how the Old Testament tracks his bones. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. So he's at, at the end of his life in Genesis 50, he says, don't be, here's what you do with my bones. Don't bury me in Egypt, where we are right now. Bury me. Whenever you come to the promised land, bury me there. Well, in, in, you go to Exodus chapter 13, right before the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea, as on dry land. Big climactic moment. In Exodus 13, 19, we read, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Moses carrying the bones of Joseph across the Red Sea. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones with you from here. So Moses, you know, obediently, took Joseph's bones out of Egypt. And we don't hear about Joseph's bones again until Joshua. At the very end of Joshua, when the people were finally in the promised land, it says in the next to last verse of the whole book in Joshua 24, 32, As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance for the descendants of Joseph. So, they, so Joseph's bones were finally buried in the promised land. But why all the fuss? Why did he carry... Why did he care where he was buried? I don't know, but Richard Phillips says that Joseph probably reasoned that if he could not live in the promised land in his life, that he would go there in his death, trusting in the God of the promise. So Joseph's faith in God, illustrated in his bones, was the, was the conviction of things not seen. Um, that God was, God was there and he would take his people out of, or God, God, would, you know, God was there, but his prophesying of the Exodus and his instructions concerning his bones was his assurance of things hoped for. There, there are so, so many more examples of this kind of faith in this chapter. We just don't have time to go through them all, but I do want to look at a few more of them that illustrate more specifically the endurance of faith. And what I do want to focus on, on here is how forward-looking faith this firm and forward-looking faith of the Old Testament leaders affected their perseverance in life. In one sense, the endurance of faith of what, it, it, were what we've already been seeing all along, that their faith trusted God. It, it trusted that God was bringing salvation to pass. Even if they wouldn't live to see it, even if I died before it came to pass, I believe that it's going to happen. Joseph, I'm, I'm not going to live to see it, but bury my bones in this promised land, which is a, a, a pledge that this salvation is coming. But in the sense that I want to think about here is how that faith impacted how they lived in the meantime. Look, let's look, look first quickly at Moses. In verses 24 and through 26, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. Isn't that interesting? He considered the reproach of Christ. Even way back in Moses' day, they understood about the Christ. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to 
the reward. I mean, so you can see how forward-looking it is. Just like we saw with Abraham, with Isaac, with Joseph, he was looking forward to Christ specifically, it says so, and he was looking forward to the salvation and the reward that he would bring. He and he considered that greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. But notice, too, the, the strength and the resolve that it gave him in the meantime. He didn't just endure mistreatment. He chose. Does it not say that? Choosing, rather, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He chose to be mistreated in the meantime because he knew that trusting in these promises, trusting in the Christ who is King of kings and Lord of lords was not compatible with his own life one day being Pharaoh. But God clearly blessed him for it, strengthened him for it, but also look down again at the latter part of the chapter where in verse 32 he, he says basically, I don't have time. I feel your pain, man. I don't have time to talk about Gideon and Barak and Samson and, Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. Then he summarizes, though, the kinds of things that all those men had to endure. But notice the wildly different descriptions. You may have noticed it when we read through it. You get one set of descriptions in verses 33 through the first part of verse 35. These, these people who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Awesome. By, essentially by faith they moved mountains. Right? But notice how the tone immediately changes. Some were tortured. Refusing to accept release. So that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking. Flogging. And even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Well, then, you know, in, 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 in verse 34, they escaped the edge of the sword. In verse 37, they didn't. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They didn't escape it. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. I mean, it, the eyes of their faith realized that they were, they were trusting in the promised Messiah to come and that their lives, their lives really became part of a bigger story of God's bringing His people for, uh, to salvation forever and it strengthened them to persevere through awful stuff. They... They weren't super saints. If you, if you read this and you think, man, they were super saints. You've missed the whole point of the chapter. Because why would giving them a list of super saints encourage them? All that would do was discourage them. 
They, they, these guys that were tempted to, to walk away from Christ would say, well, I'm not them. He's not giving them a list of super saints. He, he's giving them a list of really ordinary people, right, who, who just had faith that was convicted of things not seen. And they had assurance of things that were hoped for because they knew that God existed and that he rewards those who seek him. Even if they don't have it here on earth, they'll have it forever. But that's exactly what, at first glance, why it seems like this chapter has a funny ending. Because it almost sounds like they weren't rewarded for their faith. Let's think about that quickly. What was the end of their faith? All these people who were sawn in two and all that kind of stuff. Meaning, what was the outcome of their faith? Look at verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Wah, 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 wah. Well, that really stinks. <laughs> they were commended. Good job. Sorry. Nothing at the end. Well, at, at first it seems like a really crappy ending to a great chapter. What do you mean they didn't receive the things that were promised? This whole chapter seems to be built on the fact that they, are, they were assured that they would. Well, fortunately, this is not the last verse of the chapter. It says, sure, they did not receive what was promised, but verse 40 is a big fat yet. Keep reading. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Those Old Testament saints, sure, they're, they're, they're right now in the presence of God. But, even they, from there, have, have not yet seen the full perfection of God's plan of salvation that nobody will see until Christ comes again to bring the new heavens and the new earth. And when He comes again, we will all go in together. Right? When He comes again, Joseph's bones, his precious bones will come alive again. And all of God's people will experience that day forever. This is not just Hebrews 11 saying it. This is how Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, uh, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, notice that word, word with, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Sure, they live before us, they died before us. When He comes, their spirits will come with Him, but their bodies will be raised first, and ours, we will be caught up second, but we'll all go in together. Notice He comes he comes, in verse 14, he's coming with his saints. 
but he's also coming for his saints so that we both receive the new heavens and the new earth together. And that's what he says earlier in Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus, make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them and for us a city. Let's pray.